Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh brings us a message to help prepare our hearts for the coming new year. We are shown practical strategies to move us toward a life that is intent on bearing much fruit for the kingdom. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to John chapter 15 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, What Does the Lord Require of You? John 15. John 15. Um, while, while you're still turning, um, th- this has become a series um, at the start of every new, new year that I very much look forward to and, and believe is incredibly important, um, believe that is greatly useful. Um, and so maybe just a little bit of an intro uh, to this whole series. In Revelation 2 and 3, there's that section where Jesus wrote, Um, a letter to seven churches. And it's extremely helpful just to think through those letters anyway, that he spoke to each of those church families and said, there are some things that are going well. And he commends them, says, I'm pleased in this, this, and this with each particular church. But then also some things that he says, but this I have against you. And he would give a word of correction to some of the things they were getting wrong and such. And in the very first letter, the letter to Ephesus, he tells some of the things that he commends them in, but then he comes to verse four and he says this, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That message that is there is really a lot of what we're trying to accomplish every year in the the New Year series, a a way of remembering and returning, a a way of self-examination, looking at our lives to return us to the big picture truths, the truths of God's word that have to be kept the closest to our hearts, and we have to keep them ever fresh on our minds to keep us progressing. We are a forgetful people. It it seems to be just another part of the curse, part of the the fallen sinful nature that we have in us. And it actually takes a great deal of intentional effort to steadfastly press on. It will not happen easily. We will not run the race with excellence naturally or just by coasting along. It takes a great intentional effort. And so we take the the start of every new year to get our minds there again. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? And look at some messages that help us in thinking through how to press on. So this morning is the first message in that and very much gonna be a, a big picture kind of overview of scripture and God's purpose in our lives. So John 15 here, I'm gonna read verses one through 11 but I do want you to notice verse eight is the highlighted verse of what we're looking at. So verse eight, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. But back up to verse one and let's read the passage. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. 
abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Let's ask God's help in our time. Feel bow with me. Our God in heaven, Lord, as we approach the turn of another year, God, we do not want this to be empty words, but we very significantly want to want to commit it to you. Father, we want to resolve that we will strive. We will make great effort. We, we will strive to obey. We will strive to beat sin. We will strive to serve. We will strive to be made more useful. We will strive to come to know you more deeply. Father, we ask your blessing on us. We do not know what all will come about in our lives. We do not know what heartaches or joys will be there, but Father, we want to commit ourselves to you and ask, oh God, lead us. Do not let us drift backwards. Do not let us grow cold. We pray that this coming year would be a year where we are grown farther in our zeal, farther um, in the, the quality of our obedience to you, the, the quantity of our service. Father, we, we'd want to make progress. We want to climb higher. We want to glorify you. So Father, help us in this. We as a church family together want to commit this, oh God. So Lord, as we take time today and in these coming weeks to think on these matters, please give us grace. I ask your blessing now. Please feed us from the word. Uh, please, God, give me grace to preach, teach, lead here, uh, Father, to in a accurate and faithful way to represent your word and your will. And Father, I pray that we will be receptive to you. So please, God, send your spirit. Please make this a significant time of worship. Please bless the young ones back in the next room that your word is clearly taught, the gospel shown, and that you bring these little ones to faith in Christ. Father, everything that happens here, God, please protect and bless. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the legacies that uh, Jonathan Edwards left us with his life was his list of personal resolutions. He came to, out of his personal worship, out of his study of the scriptures, he was led in his worship to zeal, zeal and passion and joy and determination that led him to, to come to some conclusions and write out a list of things that he said, I'm going to give my life to this. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to devote myself. I, I am living for this right here. And he, he made a list of 70 
resolutions. You can find them online. They're, they're pretty helpful. Um, I don't agree with every single sentence that he wrote there. That's with a lot of Christians. We have some disagreements there, but what you will find as you read through them is a heart that was earnestly passionate about wanting his life to glorify God. Here are a few examples and some of the ones I think are pretty helpful. Here's the very first one. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. Summarizing, he is saying, I am going to live for the glory of God and I'm gonna do it tenaciously. Uh, number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time but improve it the most profitable way I can. Edwards would not have been much of a fan of Netflix. Number six, resolve to live with all my might while I live. Number 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. He made resolutions never to allow a sin to live in his life uncombated. He said, I know I won't be successful in beating every sin, but I will not let one live in my life that I don't fight. He resolved never to have a commandment of God unsought after. And then he also read over all 70 of them every single week to refresh his zeal. True worship leads us to convictions. True worship is designed by God to stir determination, willingness, joy, gratitude, a zeal, fire in our burn, uh, bones that, that sends us forward wanting to obey, wanting to stretch further and leads us to conclusions about what we want to give our lives to. Worship leads to obedience and service. It's our hope every year that some of the time we spend looking at the big picture and our purpose would do just this. It's my hope today to lead us to think through resolves. It is a biblical thing to read God's word and heed it and say, I'm going to obey this. To come up to with practical strategies and plans about how we will make progress in our sanctification, in our obedience, in our service, in greater usefulness, that we would bear much fruit in our lives. So this morning, what we're going to do, the main aim is just this. I'm going to try to lead us through, this is a topical study of two parts. Number one, we're once again going to think through what is the meaning? What is the purpose? Why am I here? What does God want of me? What is God calling me to? And, and then secondly, just kind of lead us through a little bit of examination of our lives. Can't hit every topic, but try to think through what are the areas? What are the roles that I have in order to lead to practical conclusions how can I more glorify God this year? A lot of things that scripture calls us to 
um, wouldn't be high on the entertainment scale. Um, like I get it as we get to that part where I'm going to kind of lead us through an examination and I ask some kind of tough application questions, not real entertaining, but this is what it means to obey God. This is what it means to make progress. This is what it means to fight, claw, and sweat, to press forward in our sanctification. So let's begin as we think through these things. So point number one, part number one, we'll think through all things exist for the glory of God. In John 15 here, we have a familiar passage probably to you. It's an incredibly important passage. Jesus gives us this metaphor for how to think of our life. So in Christ, you have eternal life. You've been brought to true life and you're shown how that happens. Your life comes in your connection, your attachment to Christ. You have eternal life because you're attached to the vine. He gives this metaphor that uh, as a believer, uh, you who have trusted in Christ, you are a branch and you're connected to Jesus, the true vine, and that we are called to abide in him, cling to him closely. And the closer you abide in Christ, the more fruit you will bear. The Father is pruning our lives, aka discipline, chastisement, difficulties, in order to make us more productive in our fruit. He's working so that we will produce more of this. And then Jesus gives this statement in verse 8 when he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Like a grapevine is planted for a purpose, you have been made for a purpose. The purpose of the grapevine is to grow grapes, to bear fruit. In the same way, you have been created for the purpose of glorifying God. And the way that we do that is the bearing of fruit in our lives. The good deeds, the progress, the sanctification, the the progress we make in holy character, the, the folks we share the gospel with, every aspect that comes out of our life that is honoring to God, every detail, every thought, every word of praise, all of it is the bearing of fruit unto God. This is why we've been made. But the starting point in looking at this is, is the purpose Friends, you and I have been made for the same purpose that everything else has been made for. All creations of God, all creatures, all exist for the same purpose. Somehow were designed to glorify God. Every creation was made either to worship him or to in some way inspire worship or both. Every creation of God, the beautiful things, that's easy. The sunsets that you see were designed by God. A sunset doesn't have a mind or a heart that it is worshiping God, but it was designed by God to inspire worship. But so does poison ivy and demons and thorns. They also in a way help us understand what is good and play a part in the great story of God the great drama that he is unfolding so that we are able to see his glory more than if those things had not existed. 
Mountains don't have hearts that are able to enjoy and marvel and see the worth of God, but they were created in a beautiful way to glorify God by showing his handiwork and so moving the creatures that do have capacity for worship to do so. Angels and men. Of course, it's a great mystery. Scripture shows that there are many different kinds of heavenly creatures and a whole lot of them. And God is at work to display his glory to the angels and move them to worship. So in other words, when the angels look at the stars and the galaxies and the way that God has designed this universe, the physical and the spiritual, the angels respond how they're supposed to. They respond with being moved to worship. And what scripture shows us is that around the throne of God at all times, the angels never stop being moved to worship. They are in awe of God. They're in rapturous delight, singing his praise and they love it. But there's a way, there is another part of God's creation that moves them even more than galaxies and stars marriage and sex and delight and sunsets, the complexities of the human body and the way that it shows the infinite wisdom of God. They're moved to worship and all those things, but there is a way that's even greater than all of those things. It is the great drama that God is unfolding in human history where he is exalting the name of his son. You know, we marvel at the ability that Shakespeare had to, to write a play that then would be acted out and it was beautiful. But God has written the story of history. A great drama being not just acted, but lived out. And God has written this story in which a race of men made in his image would reject him, but in his grace, the son would descend from glory, take a human body, die a death of redemption, raise from the dead in order to save a family out of the earth, a kingdom full of blood-bought sons and daughters who have been given a capacity to love him and be grateful and worship him in a way that is highlighted because of the wretched things we've seen and because of understanding our own sinfulness and what God saved us out of. And what we as Christians see of this now, the great drama, the great story of history of the gospel, the work of redemption, it leads us to the highest worship possible. Imagine our worship when we will see and understand in depth and in fullness. Everything has been made for the purpose of worship. It is the great end of the cosmos. Everything exists for his glory. It is somehow, some way, showing how great he is and he is drawing souls to rejoice in him. Angels and men, you were made to know and love and adore, and delight in, and obey, and submit to, and worship the living God, who is the all-glorious one. All of the cosmos is about this. 
to understand why I'm here, why I breathe, and why God put me here. We have to understand God's purpose overall. You do not define your existence, God did. You do not create your own purpose, God gave you your purpose. The pen doesn't create its own existence and its own purpose. Its maker made its purpose and you have been designed by God. This is why you exist. All of this is his. He owns every inch. It is all under his sovereign reign. And for a short period of time, he is allowing rebellion. Even that rebellion is still not outside of his sovereign control, but he's allowing evil, a certain freedom for a period of time, but it is all his. And he is reclaiming all of it. One day, evil will be locked away. He's going to restore the cosmos to joy and peace and order and righteousness and happy delight in him. Everything will glorify God. So friends, in the end, our purpose is to live that reality. If this is the purpose of the cosmos, we are to live in light of that. We are to live out that purpose. The purpose of our lives is to strive to bring every dimension of who we are, every detail, every area, and every millisecond to glorify God. The Lord Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. He is the one who rules and reigns, and that means everything belongs to him, we as Christians, those who love his lordship, we're not upset about the fact that he's king over all. We're the ones who delight in it. We are striving to bring every part of ourselves and everything we can influence to come under the rule and the reign of the supremacy of Christ. We are striving to bring ourselves into submission to that and anybody who'll let us influence them striving to bring them to bow and submit to Christ. That sin that is still alive in us. So as Christians, we now have this complexity inside of us that we have the spirit of God and we have this desire, I want to obey him. But at the same time, I'm an idiot and I've got these parts of me that war against God. I've got anger and lust and difficulty and rebellion. I've got these things living in my heart. These are parts of me that are still at war with God. The process of growing in Christ is fighting so that I bring these parts of me that are in rebellion to bring them, force them, beat them, punch them into submission so that all of me is bowing to Christ. The work of missions and evangelism. To quote Piper in the Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship doesn't. If worship is the great purpose of the cosmos, the reason we do missions and evangelism which is the work of sharing the gospel, telling the world and your neighbors about the message of Christ that you must be saved, you must become and, and come and be made at peace with God. The reason we do this is because we're seeking to influence everything that we can have influence over to come and submit to the rule of the Lord Jesus who is worthy of that worship. Worship is the end for which all things were designed. We are striving to bring everything there. Anybody who'll let us. The fight of sanctification is the fight of submission to God. So the very first call that you've got to hear from scripture is that if you have not yet turned to Christ, 
If you have not yet believed what the Bible says, that you must be saved. If you have not yet heard the message that apart from forgiveness of sins, you really are facing an eternity of hell. You are not good enough. You are not right with God on your own. You must be saved. You must look to Christ. If you have not yet done this, then what the Bible says is you are right now in rebellion to him. You may not think of yourself like that, but God is the one who said it, and he's the great definer of all things. If you refuse him, listen to me very carefully. If you refuse to turn to him, you are still going to glorify him, but you don't want to glorify him in the way that you will. If you reject him, if you refuse to bow the knee of submission to Christ and embrace him, you're going to glorify him. But you're going to glorify him in the same way that the demons will glorify him. In that God will display the glory of his supremacy, sovereignty, righteousness, and rule as his enemies are punished and defeated before him. The people of God, those who embrace Christ, we're the ones who glorify him in the sense that we love him. I bow gladly, I worship, and we will spend eternity in glad-hearted, joyful worship. But to you, believer, you have a purpose, and you have an enemy who is working with all of his might to keep you from that purpose, so your life is war. Your life is war. It is the war of striving to live that purpose in bearing fruit to God. So there's the question then here. If this is the purpose, if this is what we're called to, if worship and glorifying God is the end for which we were created, then how does that impact all of my life? How does it impact the details? To state it simply, we want there to be complete and absolute surrender and submission of every detail of our lives. Listen, I know this isn't convenient. I cannot give you three easy steps to becoming a great arrived Christian. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. God calls you to surrender everything. Every single thing. You've, you've heard the phrase that the lordship of Christ means that there is not a single atom in the universe of which Jesus does not speak the word mine over. That's a true statement. By the way, the man who said that um, actually lived on to beautifully live that in all kinds of dimensions of his life that was there. But what this means is for us as individuals, this means that the lordship of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the purpose of our lives to glorify God means that it touches every area. Here's a very common kind of misunderstanding of the Christian life that I've got my spirituality and my religion and then I've got everything else. I've got what I do on Sunday mornings and then I've got my work life, my fun life, blah, 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 blah. The lordship of Christ means that his supremacy the kingdom of God is to come to bear and we bring submission to every area, every category, every detail, every millisecond, every crevice, every corner, every shadow. 
Feeling overwhelmed yet? Yeah. Thank God that he's gracious. Be thankful that he's patient with us while we're working to figure these things out and make progress. But make no mistake, Jesus doesn't just want a decision from you. Jesus doesn't just want your Sundays. Jesus doesn't just want you to stop robbing banks. He is calling for absolute surrender and submission that every part of our lives would bear fruit to the glory of God. In history, gospel movements in cultures have produced an increase in every dimension of life, like even down to, to small things, like an increase in the quality of shoes and knives and watches because workers said, I want my job to glorify God. And bosses said, I, I, wanna, I wanna pay my workers better than what the wicked businessmen of the world do. And, and, and believers said, I want my home to look orderly and to display the glory of God. Every single dimension of life comes under effect of what it means to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He, Another way of seeing it is like this. If God in this moment worked a miracle and you became glorified right now, like you still had to live on this earth, but you became sinless and completely righteous right now, what kind of husband would you be? What kind of mom would you be? What kind of worker at your job? What kind of church member would you be? What kind of evangelist would you be? Striving to honor God and glorifying with our lives is trying to fight to get as close to that now as I possibly can. Or to see it another way, when Jesus was teaching us how to pray and he gave us the model prayer, think about the first three requests. Number one, hallowed be your name. That's the prayer that we have as our greatest desire, that God would magnify the glory of his name to the ends of the earth. Secondly, your kingdom come. That's the prayer. That's the prayer that the rule of God and submission to God would come in greater degrees now and later. And then that third request where Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. The earth was created to do like what is done in heaven. We were created to worship like the angels around the throne worship in a different way because we're different creatures physical bodies and heavenly bodies and given different needs and designs and such, but still to worship. And then think about when God gives a command and instruction in heaven, what happens? He is obeyed and he is obeyed fully and joyfully. Striving to live in submission to God and glorify him is now striving to make my obedience like the obedience of the angels in heaven. Living to glorify God means that I'll glorify him in my worship, yes, and worship has a place of priority, yes, of course, but also in my marriage or singleness, parenting at my house, in private, in public, that excellence would ooze out of my work and everything I'm involved in to honor God, that it would be a, a way that every area of my life becomes worship, that we would not think of worship as merely what happens on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, and every morning at seven or whatever, whenever you read your Bible, it's not just that's worship, but I want to make my evenings with my family to be an offering to God. I want my 
10 hour day at work or whatever to be an offering to God because I want to do it in such a way that is for his glory. It is about making all of life worship to glorify the king, bearing fruit in every dimension of our lives. So now let me do this. We've thought through this banner that flies over our lives. The big banner reads, glorify God, enjoy him forever. Anybody who asks you, what are you about? Okay, glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the, that's the sentence that summarizes me. And I hope that already the Holy Spirit is addressing specific details, maybe specific areas. They just kind of know, like I need to be addressing. But let me try to help lead us through some examination through our lives to start bringing it home to, to get down to the practical. Because let me, let me say this as well. We've been studying through the book of Romans and we're in a section that is heavy on theology and there hasn't been a great deal of now go home and do this kind of application. A lot of what we've been seeing is understand this about the cosmos and it'll change the way you see and you look in your perspective. But we also got to understand this. We are not glorifying God and we are not making progress unless there are these moments that we come and say, I'm going to go home and do this. Tuesday nights, I'm making this tweak, this change to my life to bring greater obedience to God. Or I'm setting my alarm 10 minutes earlier, or I'm sending a text to my wife a couple times a week. Just practical changes that lead to bearing more fruit. The rubber has to meet the road in obedience. So let's think through these things. So second part here is examination. If you notice in scripture, in the New Testament example, the, the New Testament especially, the gospel will be preached and then it is followed with, now therefore, go live a life consistent with the gospel and then it will help us think through categories of ways to do it. So an example is Romans. If you want to flip over there with me for just a moment, you can flip to chapter 12 for just a second there. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is preaching theology. It's doctrine, it's truth, it's explaining the message of the gospel. That section so beautifully ends with chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. It is this high statement of worship that is meant to be sung. It's meant for the people of God to pray this and say this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You read through all of that, it's a statement of worship. Then look what happens in chapter 12, verse one, therefore, I urge you brethren by the mercies of God in light of the gospel, in light of all that God has done for us, how do we respond? First, we respond in worship, but then that worship leads to a different kind of worship. What kind of worship is that? It is practical life obedience. So present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Don't just present your Sunday mornings. Don't just present some fraction of yourself. Present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is, watch it, your spiritual service of 
worship. Wait a second, Pastor, I thought this was obedience, not worship. I thought worship is what we do on Sunday mornings, okay? This is a special kind of worship. We can maybe call it direct worship or something like that. But when we live our lives devoted to God as a sacrifice, that becomes worship. Life can be worship. And number two, so here's the first instruction that you're given with that. Practical, rubber meets the road. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's another way of saying, be holy. Be holy, be holy, be holy. Do not be like the world. Be holy. And then here's what happens after that. When we hit that section, what will happen is verses three through 13 of chapter 12 are about how you serve and minister and care for your church family. Here's how you glorify God. Minister amidst your church family. Verses 14 to 21 are about how you love and show grace to your enemies. There's how you love God. Chapter 13 is about how you live as a citizen of an earthly kingdom. There's another way you glorify God. Chapter 14 addresses matters of Christian fellowship and and grace and patience with weaker brethren. Chapter 15, more about grace and interaction with others. That's a big theme in scripture, but then also gets into matters of missions in the gospel. But here's the point. The Bible walks us through various categories and areas and such in order to give instruction, in order to bring examination, in order to bring about practical, obedient response and life change to what we've been shown. Worship leads to response. Worship leads to obedience. Scripture calls us to examination and resolves. Second Corinthians 13, you don't have to turn there, but it's a chapter that we have in the New Testament that you might even have a subtitle in your Bible that says, examine yourself. And so what I want to do is kind of encourage some today, but I want to, again, I've got a lot of warnings and introductions before we actually get to it, but here's one more warning before we get to that point, because self-examination can become dangerous in several fronts. One is a morbid kind of obsession with our sin and that does not honor God. But let me, there's another kind of warning we need to see as well. There's a way to do self-examination that is devastating. That it's, it's how the Pharisees do it. There's a way of approaching our, 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 the scriptures and the Christian life with this kind of thinking of, I want to feel righteous I need to feel righteous. I want to justify myself. So I'm going to figure out what are the bare minimum things I need to do. I'm going to check it off my list so that I can feel like a good Christian. We sometimes call it checklist Christianity, a checklist kind of legalism. I went to a youth event one time as a new believer and they handed us a little test and it literally was a checklist and you read through it and it asked these kinds of questions. Uh, Am I going to church at least three times a week? So you're supposed to put your check. Am I reading my Bible? Put your check. Am I only listening to Christian music? You know, still never seen that one in the Bible, but legalism's always changing God's law, okay? So you're supposed to put your check. And at the end of it, what they told us was, if you said yes to all of these things, you're a good Christian. You're a good Christian. Listen to me, that's Pharisees. That's legalism. Legalism is always trying, number one, they take the law of God and they reduce it down to a shorter list that's manageable. 
Okay? It's manageable. So whatever the leaders are and the preachers there, they got a list of 15 or 20 things that I think are important. And if you're doing these things, then you're a good Christian. So you get your checklist out every single day and you make sure you're doing these kinds of things. Listen to me. That will lead to a self-righteous, destructive kind of religion that will leave you miserable and grumpy to everybody around you. There's a right way to see this where we see it through the eyes of the gospel. We see it through the eyes of the God. I am a sinner and I'm not going to stop being a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. I am a sinner and I know that I will not be absolutely successful in beating everything, but my God has told me that I can please him. I really can please him. I'm called by God to make great effort and make as much progress as I can, bear as much fruit as I can, engage in ministry, share the gospel with as many people as I can, be as useful as I can. I know I'm never going to arrive. That's the danger of legalism, is believing I can come to a place, I'm now at this plateau, I've arrived. I'm now the good Christian. I'm the professional Christian. I will never arrive, but I am gonna fight to excel as far as I can because I want to glorify God and I long for the reward he's going to give to his people. There's a phrase in 1 Thessalonians where Paul told that church that they were doing a good job in this area, but then he followed it up with, now excel still more. Excel still more. So in other words, God, you can please God. Isn't that a joyful thing? That even though we are still sinners, there's a way that God can smile on our lives and we can please him by doing our, 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 our works by faith and striving. We can please God. But we're never gonna reach a place in any dimension of your life where like, yeah, in marriage, yeah, I, I reached the pinnacle, can't go any higher. There's a lot of mountain left to climb. And the more progress we make, the more reward there is, the more fruit we bear, the more glory we're given to God. And it's this theme that pick, it's this thing that picks up steam. The more we glorify God, the more joy we get in glorifying God. The, the more fruit we bear, the more joy I have in that fruit, the more excited that we can get. And the farther we climb and climb and climb and we keep going and we can please the Lord. So the purpose of examination is not to try to give a checklist and it's not to try to figure out when I can quit. <laughs> but it's, try, it's trying to ask some legitimate questions. What's going well? What's not going well? By the way, it's not an arrogant thing to look at a place in your life and say, hey, this is going well. There's an arrogant way to do it, <laughs> but it's not an arrogant thing to see. All right, family worship finally got a rhythm going. I mean, I'm gonna keep working to make it better and strive to be consistent, but this is working. This is the right direction. That's not arrogant to come to those conclusions. But self-examination is looking at what are some of those areas that, man, I'm just not going well right now. What's the sin in my life right now that is causing God the greatest grief? What's the command that I've not yet started to obey or I'm not obeying fully that I really need to give a whole lot of attention to? And how can I strategize? What can I, I can, I can plan for this. And or when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to make the first thing I do is pray that I won't be a grumpy dad today. It's looking at life and trying to say, where do I need to give attention? And so in one sense, yeah, all of it, all of the law of Christ. But what are practical changes that I can make? But if we never think through it, we will never do anything. Like this is just part of how obedience works. We don't make changes unless we think about it. We don't make changes unless it's before our eyes. 
So the systematic reading of the word and the occasional times of self-examination, it's just about this, bringing it before my eyes, be like, oh, I hadn't thought about that in six months. I really need to address this. It's thinking through how to give obedience to God. So let me try to walk us through some categories. I cannot cover all of the Christian life, but I'm gonna try to hit big categories to help us think through. So what are the resolutions? What are the practical changes that we need to make in our life? Christian, how is your worship? How is your worship? What changes or resolutions need to be made in your worship. There's a reason why I start here. Number one, because worship is the place of highest priority, but it's also this, worship is the beginning and the end. And what I mean by that is, worship is the great goal of all things. Like you don't worship in order to get something else. Worship is the end. That's the highest thing. That, it's the highest place on the ladder you can go of honorable activities. But what God has so marvelously designed this world and our bodies to operate by is that when we worship, it also is a fuel that drives us and inspires us to go on to obey. Great efforts in worship then lead us to strive to greater obedience. There is a reason why your shepherds here at this church family, we are always pleading with you to get yourselves under much preaching and teaching and fellowship and the ordinances and prayer times with the church family and why I never stop pleading with you to systematically read the word on your own. I know, I know that with a right kind of heart, we have to put that in there, if you will systematically read through the word, you will never be the same again. Not in one day, but there is a building effect of transformation. There is a cause and effect relationship that we have with worship. Worship produces change. The more you systematically read through the word and engage in those elements of worship, of drawing near to God that he has given us, the more change, transformation will happen in your life. That's its own sermon that we'll come back to on another day. But let me ask you, Christian, how is your worship? What's your plan? Do you have a plan? What's your plan for family worship? What's your plan for private worship? Like if an angel showed up tonight and asked you the question, what are you doing? What is your intentional method for seeking the face of God? What would you respond? And what would the angel say in response to what you said? How are you seeking God? What are your decisions about, I am going to be intentional that I seek God in this, 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 and this way? How's your worship Next category, how is your family life, if that applies to you and where you are in life? How's your marriage? You know, it's a common thing in the world for husbands to complain about their wives, wives to complain about their husbands, and both of them to complain about how bad their marriage is, and then for nobody to do anything. That's not the Christian response. Husbands, how's, how's the intimacy in your marriage? Is your wife blossoming because you are loving and pursuing her well. What are practical changes you can make in your life so as to bring a flourishing of your marriage? The intimacy of your marriage is a spiritual matter. Read Song of Solomon. 
Wives, what are practical changes you can make in your life so as to inspire your husband, so as to respond to him, so as to beautify your marriage? How is parenting going? God designed the family to be the training grounds where children are shepherded and trained to grow into competent, equipped followers of Christ who set out to influence and impact this world. How's that going in your life? And and you do notice here, the great difference between understanding the way that scripture presents these things and the checklist mentality You know, the checklist mentality is, all right, I didn't yell at my kids this week. I didn't beat anybody. I didn't, you know, go down the list of all these kinds of things. But instead, what scripture shows us is this great goal and then moves us to inspire, to work hard at it. Raise your children in the instruction of the Lord. That's not just like a bare minimum, make sure you do this one thing a day. It's, all right, how can I design our evenings? Or what time do I need to turn that stupid TV off so that we have some time so I sit down with my kids? How can I, on Saturday mornings, take my kids to a breakfast to individually disciple them? It's looking at how can I manage my life so as to honor and glorify God and fulfill this purpose. Singles, you have questions you need to look at. Are you living in sexual purity? Are you modeling contentment? and satisfaction in Christ? Are you using your time well? And then whenever we all look at the law of Christ, are there prohibitions in the law of God? So that's the don't do this kind of thing. Are there prohibitions that you've been breaking and you know you are and you've not yet started to address it? We need to understand as believers that this is a massive, massively important issue right here. Obedience is a big deal. Are there commandments in your life that you're breaking and right now the Holy Spirit's bringing them to your minds and you know you are? What's your plan for addressing it? And then are there commands of the go do this kind of command and you've not yet started to try and make effort in the fulfilling of those things? What's your plan for making progress? And then examine the character. You know, character is the things like attitudes, thoughts, and where we are in the inner man, not just the actions, but you know, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are patterns of character. Dads, are you grumpy and irritable with your kids? Character issues. And what the Bible shows us is that when it comes to these kinds of things, there's never going to be like flip a switch and like, oh, okay, I'm not grumpy anymore. But it's a fight of what can we be doing so as to make progress so that instead of grumpy, I'm now patient and kind. Instead of irritable, I'm now slow to anger and long suffering. The Bible gives us strategies for these things. Ask and seek and knock practical things we can do to make progress in these areas. We're called and served to minister as part of the kingdom of God. Christians, you have responsibilities to your church family, uh, to minister in and amongst and to the body of Christ. How's that going? If you had a conversation with an angel tonight and the angel asks you, tell me about how you're serving the church. 
would the angel's response be to that? We have a responsibility to the world around us to bring the gospel to the lost, to make disciples. Are you intentionally taking part in some way in the furtherance of the gospel. This is an area that a lot of times folks feel guilty on, and we're gonna have a whole message on it specifically, but understand we have different ways that we engage in that. It's not always standing on a street corner proclaiming the gospel. But do you have ways that you are involved in the furtherance of the gospel? And then, and then we, we look over our lives. Let me just kind of conclude as we look over it all, work, recreation, how am I using my downtime? Uh, how am I using the time in the evenings or the time in the mornings? We look over all of it. A lot of with the Christian life, God doesn't always say every single detail and how it all is supposed to be done, but a lot of times we'll say, here's your life, manage it. Manage it as a steward. I entrust it to you. Go and do a good job. Go and bear fruit. Christian, let's make progress. I want to encourage you to come to conclusions. Come to resolves about ways to make progress in glorifying God. And, and if you're here and that very first thing you know is that you've never responded in the first way. You've never turned to trust Christ for salvation. That's where you begin. Call out to him in prayer. Turn in your heart and trust Christ. If you want somebody to talk to about that, nothing I'd rather do at the end of this service than explain more about it or answer questions, but look to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Father, after thinking through all of these things, I pray this throughout the rest of this day, throughout these coming days and even weeks, please bring to our minds, please convict us in areas we need to address, in areas we need to make progress. We want to glorify you. So Father, please lead us and empower us to do that by your spirit. Please give us your blessing. And Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, What Does the Lord Require of You? Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.